Hamlet podcast, episode 26. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrissey. We are reaching the end of this extraordinary scene, which began, lest we forget, with the porter's wildly imaginative depictions of hell and damnation. Macduff has arrived and learned of the shocking murder, and then Macbeth has announced that he took it upon himself to kill the king's bodyguards. So we have three dead bodies, no particular confirmation of motive, and Lady Macbeth has been carried off stage in a faint. By this point in Hamlet, Polonius is still lecturing Ophelia, and Laertes hasn't even left for Paris. Now it is Banquo that seems to be taking charge, since Macbeth has blood on his hands, again, and might want to go and tend to his wife. Macduff is appalled by the murder, so it is appropriate for Banquo, another senior statesman, to address the crowd and manage this strange and horrified gathering. He's already told people to look to the lady, and now he continues. And when we have our naked frailties hid, that suffer in exposure, let us meet, and question this most bloody piece of work, to know it further. Fears and scruples shake us. In the great hand of God I stand, and thence against the undivulged pretense I fight of treasonous malice. The imagery of clothing really is so rich in this play. Here Banquo acknowledges that everyone has probably rushed from their beds, probably without thinking to dress formally on the way. So now they're all standing around in their nightclothes. It's Scotland, so they probably aren't literally naked. But the word has just as much the connotation of everyone being there exposed and vulnerable, since, of course, they've just been presented with this dreadful news of the king's murder, and now their country has no monarch. So it's a good choice of word, and, indeed, it's the opposite of clothed, of dressed in all the things that robes can signify. Here and now, they're all as equal as they'll ever be together, united in this morning light and this terrible news. So Banquo suggests that once they've gone and got dressed, their naked frailties hid that suffer in this exposure, they will meet again and question this most bloody piece of work. Bloody is a very common word in this play. There are 13 instances of it, and I'm sure numerologists would be very excited that this bloody word has the unlucky number 13 attached to it here in this, of course, cursed play. Bloody man, bloody business, bloody instructions, and here, a bloody piece of work. And there's yet another to come in the scene before we finish. The word has a hangover from about 250 years of English parlance, from the 1750s to the early 20th century, bloody was one of the most scandalous words you could use. But ironically, there's no such taboo in Shakespeare or in the work of any of his contemporaries, and here it quite literally means bloody. It's not a qualifier. We're just talking about an awful lot of actual blood. Banquo acknowledges how shocking all of this news is. He says fears and scruples shake us, since, of course, the mind might race in the aftermath of such an act. Who's to blame? And what right had Macbeth to intervene, even if he is the host and the lord of this castle? Banquo certainly isn't using the royal we here. 
He's saying they're all surely rattled and have their doubts, scruples and so on. So they'll need to discuss this. Banquo says that he stands in the great hand of God, a rather epic contrast to the hands of the Macbeths, all now stained with the king's blood. Hands are a very regular image in this play, so it's worth listening out for them. Banquo is saying he's here for justice and for honesty, particularly since he's already feeling he will have to fight against the undivulged pretense of treasonous malice. Treasonous malice is straightforward enough. It's the wickedness or malice that will have committed this act of treason, killing the king. But Banquo is a little subtler when he talks about undivulged pretense. Here he's reminding everyone that they don't know who killed the king. The motive is undivulged. But instead of saying undivulged skullduggery or murder that has yet to be claimed, he calls it pretense. And bear in mind, a pretender to the throne is someone who has a claim to the crown but doesn't have it yet. With this little nod, all eyes could turn to Malcolm, who right now has a pretty strong case and claim to the throne. He's already been named Duncan's heir, but nobody seems to be rushing to crown him, not least thanks to Banquo and this little verbal threat. We get one of my favourite kinds of shared lines now, as first Macduff and then everyone else chimes in to agree with Banquo. So the line in total reads, And thence against the undivulged pretense I fight of treasonous malice, and so do I, so all. Before Banquo is handed the keys to the kingdom for such level-headed management, Macbeth joins in. We are still in his house, and so he suggests what they can all do next. He says, let's briefly put on manly readiness and meet in the hall together. So they'll all quickly get dressed and replace naked frailty with manly readiness, like good Scottish thanes should do. And as we learn from Hamlet, the readiness is all. And they'll all meet in the hall. Everyone responds that they are well contented to do so, and just about everyone leaves. Only Malcolm and Donalbane remain to finish the nervous conversation we heard them begin in the previous episode. Things are not looking good at all if even the noble Banquo is hinting at suspicion of them, particularly of Malcolm. And he asks, What will you do? Let's not consort with them. To show an unfelt sorrow is an office which the false man does easy. I'll to England. Malcolm does the classic Shakespearean thing of asking a question, what will you do, and then answering it with his own intentions. He feels they should not attend this meeting in the hall, so he says let's not consort with them. He then has this intriguing little line that suggests that he too has his suspicions. Without pointing the finger, he says, to show an unfelt sorrow is an offence which the false man does easy. He's saying it's very easy for a false man, or a liar, to pretend to be sad. Depending on the sorrow being shown by everyone else on stage, this could of course apply to anyone. But it's open for the actor playing Malcolm to put quite a spin on this and let us infer where his suspicions might lie. He himself has decided to go to England. Donalbane replies, To Ireland I... 
our separated fortune shall keep us both the safer. Where we are, there's daggers in men's smiles. The near in blood, the nearer bloody. Donalbane makes the excellent choice to come to Ireland. He wisely avers that staying separate from his brother will keep them both safer. Here in Scotland, there are daggers in men's smiles. Again, Shakespeare is echoing words and images that have been very meaningful already in the play. We've had smiling, and we've certainly had a very important dagger. Donalbane is no fool. He continues that they are in the bloodiest danger, since they are the king's sons, the nearest of his blood relations. Bloody again. Then Malcolm concludes the scene. This murderous shaft that shot hath not yet lighted, and our safest way is to avoid the aim. Therefore to horse, and let us not be dainty of leave-taking, but shift away. There's warrant in that theft which steals itself when there's no mercy left. He likens the king's murder to an arrow that has been shot but has not yet landed. It's an amazing image. He's aware that things have been begun by this attack, but whoever is behind it is only getting started. In fact, the safest thing to do is to avoid the aim. If they get out of the country entirely, they're less likely to be shot by it. Therefore, he says, to horse. And they're not going to waste time by being polite and saying their goodbyes. They will not be dainty of leave-taking, but shift or slip away. He says they're justified in stealing away quietly like this because there's no love or mercy left for them here in Macbeth's castle. It's quite a clever line. There's warrant in that theft which steals itself when there's no mercy left. His speech ends with a rhyming couplet, a neat ending to this remarkably busy scene. The brothers often exit symbolically on either side of the stage. There's no emotional goodbye between them, and while we'll see plenty more of Malcolm, this is Donalbane's last exit. So, be aware that if you're ever offered this role, you'll be finished rather early in the evening, if they don't sweeten the deal with another character who shows up later in the play. Next time, we will see Ross again, and get a very different perspective on all these shocking events in Scotland. I hope you'll stay tuned and join me for that, and of course, if you're hunting for more in the meantime, you can explore the great range of materials on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next time.